Amen. Okay. We are in Genesis chapter 24. I told you Genesis chapter 24. 24 is the longest chapter in the book of Genesis by quite a margin. Uh, I think 67 verses total. So we got through a big swath of it last time, all of 10 verses, right? (laughs) And I'm hoping we'll get through about another 10 to 12 verses today. And then my plan is to get through all the rest of it the next time. There's just so much here. And part of it, part of it that makes it tough is we're so far removed from that context and culture that we see and hear things in the scripture and it doesn't even register to us. Like, why is that even a big deal, right? Like she took her water jar off her shoulder, so what? Right? But it says it two or three different times. And so there's actually something being illustrated here, and so um, we want to get into that. We want to draw that out. So turn with me to chapter 24 of Genesis. And while you're turning there, I'm going to do a little review. We went through the first ten verses, right? We talked about the use of euphemisms in Scripture. You guys remember what a euphemism is? In case you don't remember, a euphemism is when we use a milder term or phrase in place of one that might have come, come across as harsh or rude or offensive, right? We said a lot of times we do the same thing. Every culture, by the way, does this. Every language on earth, every culture on earth does this, just so you know. So it's not just we in the Western church. It's not just the scriptures. Every culture does this. Jesus did this. And the problem is... Sometimes that can engender misunderstandings, right? Jesus did that with the disciples. Hey, we're going to go down because Lazarus has fallen asleep. I'm going to go wake him up. Hey, Lord, what are you doing waking him up? If he's sick, he might get better. He's like, all right, guys, you're being dense. He's dead. I'm trying to tell you he's dead. I'm going so I can resurrect him. Why didn't you just say so? I just did, right? So we do the same thing. And the the scriptures have euphemisms in them as well, a a lot of Near Eastern euphemisms. And one, of course, that we talked about was putting put your hand under my thigh, and I'm not going to go back over all of that. You can just listen to the last message if you want to know what we're talking about. But that's a euphemism, and there's other euphemisms that are going on in the Scriptures. And it's a big deal that we know about them. So we also said that Abraham, along with his servant, are looking at this task, this task of finding Isaac a wife, with incredible seriousness. And I'm hoping that in that regard you are emulating him. I hope you realize it should be that serious to you as well if you have children. I have four kids. I pray for their spouses. I do. The oldest one is six. Okay, we're a ways away from that. I get it. But that's a massive deal. It's a huge deal. Who you choose to marry will be the greatest decision you'll ever make in your life outside of Jesus Christ. Far more important than what you do or what school you go to or what you major in or where you work or where you live. Far more important than that is who you marry. Because your spiritual heritage is riding on it. Hey, young men, listen to me. Your spiritual heritage is riding on who you hitch your wagon to. You marry a woman that doesn't love the Lord, guess what? Those values that you're talking about that you say are so important to you will very likely not be passed on to your children. Well, then those values really aren't as important to you as you say. They're very serious about the selection of a suitable mate, and we ought to be as well. And I would, in fact, contend one of the reasons that we've seen such a precipitous decline in Christianity in America, in the Western world, is precisely because we have not been. 
We'll talk about and prepare our children for everything else. And by the way, everything else that's absolutely frivolous in an eternal view. We will spend thousands of dollars making sure they get the right equipment, the right training, the right coaches for sports. But when it comes to choosing a mate, we kind of throw them out there and say, hey, best of luck. Give it a crack. As if a 15 or 18-year-old really knows what they're looking for. Don't you think you should be involved in the process? This guy's 40 years old, and his dad goes, hey, Eliezer, I want you picking him. Dude, he's 40. Yeah, but Eliezer's more like 60, 70. He knows. Listen, man, you know what it takes to have a godly wife. You know what we're looking for for this boy. Go do it. They were very serious. Everything was riding on it. Abraham was willing to sacrifice whatever was necessary in order to secure the right kind of spouse for his son. Will we do that? We'll sacrifice what's ever necessary to make sure our son is baseball star, football star, track star. You fill in the blank. But to make sure that he knows the right kind of spouse, to make sure that he marries the right kind of spouse, what kind of sacrifice will we make for that? Why is it that way? Well, we want to be like the culture. We want to fit in. Notice what Abraham's major concern is, by the way. Verse 3, I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughter of the Canaanites. Number one ultimate importance to Abraham is don't get entangled with these godly people. These ungodly people should not be part of you. You shouldn't even look at them. They're, They're not a suit. Don't even think about it. He knows the Canaanites are ungodly and destined for judgment. I have news for you. Someone else in our culture that is ungodly is destined for judgment as well. You do not want your sons or daughters marrying one of them. You don't want their heart getting entangled with one of them. Guard your heart with all diligence, Proverbs says. With all diligence, be be so careful to do this. Put effort into this. That's what it means, with all diligence. Why? Because out of it spring the issues of life. Get your heart entangled with the wrong person and see if it will ruin your life. He knows the Canaanites are destined for judgment. He knows a Canaanite girl is not going to teach his grandchildren the ways of the Lord. He knows a Canaanite is not going to be equally yoked with his son. And that issue should be just as important to us today. It was an important enough issue that Abraham is willing to single out his most trustworthy servant that we talked about last time. The man he trusts most on the entire earth and says, I'll give you whatever you need. Everything that I own is at your disposal. I'll give you whatever you need, but you've got to go back and you've got to get a girl from my family. You've got to get a girl that knows the Lord. That was 500 miles on camel. We wonder if it's too much. Man, I don't know, man. It's... A lot of effort. 500 miles one way on camel to find a suitable bride. Take whatever you need. And what we find out later, by the way, is that he did just that. He took gold. He took a lot of gold. I mean, when he gave her, he gives Rebecca bracelets at the wells. They're 10 shekels apiece. In case you, so to do the math for you, the conversion, in case you're not up on shekels, right? Like who is? It's like the metric system, man. That's terrible. 
tell my kids, like, it's easier than regular. Like, it's just powers of ten, right? Well, shekels are not metric either. Okay. Shekels, ten shekels about a quarter pound of gold. And four ounces-ish. And you got one for each wrist and then a nose ring. I mean, ladies, would it make an impression on you if you go to this well, you hand water some livestock for a guy, and he goes, hey, here, by the way, here's $75,000 in new jewelry. I, I think you would, it, it would make an impression. That was the point. Like, that's kind of over the top, isn't it? Is it over the top? Is that too much effort? We're talking about the person they marry. If there's any reason to go over the top, this might be it. 500 miles, one way to find a suitable bride. And by the way, of course, there's not, you know, not paved roads and <laughs> Hertz rent a car, right? On camel, people. Which, by the way, camels are incredible animals, and we're going to talk about that today because, well, you know, I'm... I'm a science guy. What can I say? Let's pick up at verse 10, and we will continue working our way through this chapter of Genesis, all right? Verse 10, let's pick up there. We're not going to go very far, and I'm going to have to start talking about it. Verse 10 says, The servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, because all of his master's goods were in his hands. Ten camels. That's a lot of camels. That's a caravan. A camel can grow to be over seven feet tall and weigh 1,800 pounds. They're much larger animals than most people realize. I shouldn't say most people. Most people in Oklahoma, we don't just have camels out in the pastures, right? We have cattle for the most part. Camels are big, big animals. And they are incredibly adept at being able to live in really harsh desert environments. And that's the reason that we're taking them. But I'm telling you that because I want you to realize if you had ten camels, you were rich. Okay? Camels were not small animals. They were a lot of work to take care of. They are, they're very different than a lot of other animals. If you have 10 kids, it's kind of like, you know, you pull up to somebody's house and there's like six cars in the driveway. You don't have to wonder if they have money. They can tell you they don't, right? No, we're not really rich. Did you get six cars? I mean, I'm just letting you know, I got two, right? And one of them's a pretty good beat up truck, right? Just saying. Seven feet tall, 1,800 pounds. They could carry a cargo of four to 600 pounds for 30 miles a day. Four to 600 pounds. For most of you, that's you and all the luggage you can think of, right? Or it's one me and like an umbrella and spare change, right? Basically same thing. <laughs> a little different in size here, you know. <laughs> if I'm getting on, they're like, don't give him the baby. No, right? <laughs> Break his back. That's a big animal. 30 miles a day they can go. By the way, they can go 14 to 15 days without a drop of water. Not one. Two weeks between refills, man. That's impressive. Covered 30 miles. By the way, if they covered 30 miles a day, if they really did that, this trek would still take you 17 days. They didn't cover 30 miles every single day. They had to stop. There's different places where you have to stop at certain points because that's where the oasis is, right? Or that's where the, the people are. And you're going to stop and rest and, and resupply and recuperate. So I promise you this is not just take – this is probably a month-long journey one way. And you've got a caravan of camels and you've got the most precious things in your camp with you. Guess what else you're going to take then? I bet you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out if you've got that much gold 
on a bunch of camels. You ain't going to just take one guy. There are bandits. There are robbers. It's not like a new thing, right? So he's going to take his roughest, toughest men. He's going to take probably a half dozen or so really strong, tough, durable men. I was telling Stephanie this the other day. I said, you know, there was a premium in that day and age of men. Men that love God, but who are still men. These aren't the kind of men that are going to go looking for a fight, but they're not going to shy away from it either. There's still a premium on that today. We need some men in the body of Christ today. This was not an overnight trip. Eliezer is taking gold and other precious gifts too. He's going to take some fighting men with him. And the text will tell us in verse 59 that he had other men with him. All right. They're going to have to keep the valuables safe on the way there. Right. There's there's bandits and we've got gold and lots of other precious things, too. But maybe the most important part is on the return trip. Much more important than the gold and silver and precious things they're taking with them is the cargo they're bringing home. This woman is much more valuable than that. Why? The covenant's writing on her. If you know the covenant is writing on this girl, making, being the, first of all, being the right kind of girl, two, making it home safely, what kind of men would you send? Now, I can tell you what kind of men I'm going to send. They're going to be the guys that are just a little rough around the edges. They're going to be the guys that don't quite fit the mold. Why? Because it doesn't bother them to be out in the desert for 15 days without seeing, you know, civilization. It doesn't bother them to, in short, it doesn't bother them to be men. They're not, they don't have banker's hands. These are men who are tough. They're rough. They're durable. They're not entitled. They're not whiners. It's kind of like a pastor, actually, in my mind. I think that's what pastors should be. Maybe part of the problem we've got in the Western churches, we've got a lot of spoiled, entitled brats for pastors rather than men that are willing to get their hands dirty. These men are not fearful, soft, or effeminate. They're going to be tough. And by the way, I mean, when you think about that day and age, you know, the guy that's just middle of the road toughness that day and age, like today, right? He's like, he's a mountain man. You know what I'm talking about? By the way, that's kind of the job of a pastor, too, now that I'm on that train of thought. Watching over the master's bride on the journey. That's the job of a pastor. To protect her, to guide her. To look out for danger for her, to be willing to take the blow of the sword for her, to be willing to take the bite of the animal for her, that's the job of a pastor. And part of the reason that we have such a soft and, excuse me for saying it, such a soft and effeminate church in America is because we've decided that pastors should be people that never make anybody mad. They should be the most agreeable people rather than holy We've looked for Judas rather than John the Baptist. John the Baptist, he's just cut from that weird cloth. A little too outspoken. A little too rough around the edges. Anyway. The point is, though, Abraham's servant was wise. He knew what kind of dangers would be encountered on this trip, and he planned accordingly. He loaded up some very fine treasure for this prospective girl and her family, and he took along the force necessary to keep it safe. 
In other words, he showed how serious he was about this task by the way he prepared for it. He showed how serious he was by the way he prepared for it. There's a sermon in that, but it's not the one I'm preaching today. Continuing on, verse 10, he arose and went to Mesopotamia, 500 miles. We just skipped the whole journey. It's incredible to me. Like, that is an incredible journey, and it doesn't even make it. Yeah, he rose, he loaded the camels, then went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. And he made his camels kneel down outside the city by a well of water at evening time, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, please give me success this day. And show kindness to my master, Abraham. I wish I could go into all of what's going on with his prayer. It's incredible the kind of character this man had. Behold, here I stand by the well of water and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Now let it be that the young woman to whom I say, please let down your pitcher that I might drink. And she says, drink, and I'll also give your camels a drink. Let her be the one you've appointed for your servant, Isaac. And by this, I will know you've shown kindness to my master. Notice that he said this. I want her to say, you go ahead and have a drink and I'll give your camels a drink. Not, I'm going to water your camels until they're done slaking their thirst. Do you know how much water a camel can drink, by the way? We have, it, it has been recognized and recorded uh, a couple of really dehydrated camels that drank 50 gallons of water in three minutes. Not 30. Three. Average ordinary camel can drink down 30 gallons of water in 15 minutes or less. If That's mind-boggling to me. By the way, how much water do they store in their humps? They don't store water in their humps. Come on. Right? What are their humps full of? Well, they're full of fat, actually. You've got to have energy. When you, actually, when you think about it, that's an incredible design feature. Now I'm going I'm to get off track in design features. But it's an incredible design feature for something that's living in a hot environment. Right? I mean, fat is thermal insulative. Right? I, so, you know, without trying to be rude, like I am, you know, better prepared for cold weather than some. OK. All right. That's what I'm going to go with because I have yeah, a little bit of extra fat around my ribs. It's like a coat that I'm wearing all the time. Right. Thankfully, I'm not really a hairy guy. So whew, if I was hairy and that man, I'd be a sweating animal. But they don't have that. They have it piled on top. Think about it. It's a really good way. Because they don't have fat around their ribs or around their legs. They can cool off. The problem is in the desert, it gets really cold at night. But most people don't realize that. They know the desert, oh, it's, hot, it's hot during the day. You've got all that sand out there, you know. And, yeah, but at night, it gets really, really cold. The, the fact, there was a UFC fighter that uh, at one time I really liked. Uh, this very talented guy who decided to go camping out in the, uh, the desert out in California. And he actually died from exposure. He realized it was high. He took along a bunch of gear to stay hydrated. He forgot how cold it was going to be. It killed him. Well, think about them. They have this big bunch of fat piled up on their back. So during the day when they're walking, they're cooling off. But at nighttime when it gets cold and they sit down, it's like a big blanket on top of them. Very, very ingenious design. It's as if they were well designed. It's crazy, but it's true. They were well designed. I will give, he wants a girl that's going to say, yeah, I'll give your camels a drink too. I'll put some water in the trough. There was, typically at these town wells, you'd go down, you'd, you'd get your water. There was also troughs nearby. So if you had camels or whatever livestock you had with you, you could go draw water, come back, put it in the trough. Usually that was your hired hands did that. That was hard work. 
you're not right next to the well. That's where the people drink. You can't have the animals too close, right? Because otherwise they'll be, their dung will be infecting the well. So they've got to be up the hill and out a ways. You with me here? So he says, here's what I've got to do. I mean, it's interesting to think about what his, what Eliezer, what Abraham's servant has done. I mean, on this trip, it's obvious he's had time to think about this. He's going to come up with a test that's going to reveal some very specific character traits in this girl. He's not looking for just any girl. I mean, think about that. He decides to stop the caravan on the outskirts of the city in the evening. He doesn't go to the city gates where the elders would be. Now, that's interesting. Because the well was kind of the informal community center of the time, right? Kind of the hub of informal community center. It's, it is not where official business goes on. He knows most of the young marriage-age women of the town are going to be coming out to fetch water for their households at that time of day. And so he's going to have plenty of prospects, so to speak. But there is a slice of the society that will be conspicuously absent. Who is it? Well, it's high society. It's the pampered elites. They won't be there. You got a girl that's a Disney princess mold? She's not going to be there. They wouldn't dare involve themselves in such a menial, everyday, lowly task as fetching water. Their servants are going to go fetch water. No, high society wouldn't have their servants or wouldn't, wouldn't have their hand in this. They'd have their servants go fetch it for them. This is the wrong place altogether if he's looking for that pampered little princess. He's not looking for that. If it's the pampered princess he wanted to find, he'd have to go to the city gates. He'd talk to the elders of the city. He would inquire about the other pretty wealthy landowners around them and find out what delicate little desert flower was eligible to be whisked away to begin her fairy tale romance. You know, that's the thing about fairy tale romances. They're only fairy tales. Real marriages take real work. And he knew that. And he knew that was the kind of woman that Isaac would need. And that's where he went to find him. He's not looking for the pampered, entitled elite. He knows a girl from that mold would be entirely unprepared for what lies ahead. She'd be entirely unprepared for the labor and the sacrifice that it will take to be a godly mother, to bear and raise godly children. And remember, that's the goal. She would be unprepared to keep and maintain a home. She'd be unprepared to keep watch over the day-to-day chores of the ranch, if you will. And remember, that's really basically what she would be doing. You're marrying into, you're on the ranch. He owns herds, flocks, sheep, donkey, cattle, right? In case you're not aware, it is work to take care of them. (laughs) Some of y'all know that better than others, right? If you're a vet, you know that. You're taking care of yours and everybody else's. Three in the morning. Or if you're the ag teacher, I've seen Justin do this. What are you doing leaving the house at midnight? My pig won't pee. I don't know what's wrong. What? I had to go out there and help him. Like, you know, it comes in bleary eyed. You're like, what happened? I had to go help somebody last night with a pig. You're like, people call you at 12 o'clock for pigs? Let me tell you what would happen. Someone called me at 12 o'clock with a problem with the pig. Sorry, dude, your pig's going to die. See you tomorrow. <laughs> right? It's work. It is work taking care of those things. He's not looking for the pampered. And by the way, it's no different today. 
I want to raise my sons and daughters with love. And I want to love my daughters, but I do not want to pamper them like a little princess. They have got to learn to work. We have an entire generation, an entire society that's forgotten what it is to work. You can't find people to work at McDonald's. Never mind, do hard farm work. It's incredible. It's no different today. An inflated ego, an inflated sense of self-importance will make you think you're above those menial tasks. Why? It's not for me. That's for those little insignificant people. By the way, there's a term for that vice, that mentality. Would you like to know what it is? Vanity. It's vanity. It's vain. Why, you're just better than all of that. You don't need to do those menial things. That kind of menial, insignificant work is for menial and insignificant people, but not you. Oh, no, not you. You're far too important for that sort of thing, aren't you? What kind of self-centered arrogance does that kind of thinking come from? It certainly doesn't come from the humility of Christ. It doesn't come from esteeming others as better than ourselves. It does not come from Philippians 2.3, which says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind... Let each esteem others as better than himself. That's interesting. Do you live that out? Or is your life marked more by self-promotion and selfish ambition? It's always instructive to me to see who's willing to serve others, even when they won't get credit, they won't get glory. Who will? Some years back, we were still on Main Street. Uh, we had a... Precious little lady, um, her husband had suffered a stroke and he was incapacitated at a hospital up in Oklahoma City. So she was having to move from the big home they had always lived in out in the country to a smaller house in town. Because the smaller home would be a lot easier for her to care for, take care of, keep up because she's making lots of trips up to see her husband. Right. And so we had in, in essence at that point, she was a widow. Okay. Uh, we had a bunch of young men at our church, and, and some of them had expressed to us as elders they felt the call to pastor. We had some doing seminary classes. We had some going through the school of ministry. But we had a good-sized group of young men. So we announced to the church about her need. Hey, we got this basically widow that needs help. Listen, nobody wants to move or pack, and nobody wants to help you pack or move. I get it. You know one of the jobs I did when I was in college for two years? Worked at a moving company. There was never a day that I got up and was like, man, I love this job. <laughs> well, I just do this my whole life, right? But it was paying my bills, and I was getting through school. So I was doing it. <clears throat> so we announced to the church, hey, whoever wants to help her, meet up on Saturday morning. We're going to go out here, help her pack up, and help her move. And as Justin and I were driving out there, I can remember telling him, uh, I'll be interested to see which of our young men will show up. You see, that says something about you. What was interesting was there was a couple of those young men who had been so adamant they needed some time to preach, but they couldn't be bothered for something as insignificant as helping a widow pack up and move. Well, that makes sense. It wouldn't bring them any fame, no notoriety. It's beneath us. That's for you guys. You guys got that covered. Well, that showed me a lot of things about hearts and motives. You know what the good thing was? Good thing was there were some fantastic folks that showed up and helped. Some of them worked all night the night before and showed up early that morning. Darren Jolly and his boys, they worked circles around us, I think. If you can keep up with Travis and Ryan, you can keep up with anybody. I'm, I'm totally convinced. 
But there were some precious saints that showed up and helped this precious lady move. There were people who sacrificed and knew they weren't getting anything out of it. Why? Because there was a member of the body of Christ that had a need and they wanted to serve. See, that's the heart of a pastor. I, I, I thought it was interesting. We were at the, uh, at the, uh, the conference. The question and answers, one of the questions that came up was, hey, if I'm a young man and, and I feel like God's called me to pastoral ministry, what do I do? And one of the men answered and said, clean toilets. What? That doesn't make sense. Yes, it does. What he's saying is, everybody wants to be here. Oh, everybody will listen to me. I'll be big and significant. And he's saying, if you're really called to that, then serve. Are you really called to that? Are you called to serve? I have news for you. You are called to serve the body of Christ. There's no doubt about that. The question is, can you serve if you're not getting any glory out of it? No notoriety, no fame. Because that's the majority of the service that needs to happen. That's why he said that. That was a very interesting answer. Clean toilets. Go do the things that nobody will see. The reason, by the way, that I'm saying that is I am sure the Lord will place many of you men here into ministry positions in due time. That's part of our vision here at Sovereign Grace. We've talked about that multiple times. Part of our vision at Sovereign Grace is to train up the next generation of pastors, church planners, elders, deacons, worship leaders, etc., etc. So if that's you, and it probably is, then let me address you directly. Be faithful in the little things. Be faithful in the things that won't garner you notoriety. Be faithful in the things that only Jesus sees. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, you'll never glory in God until first God has killed your glorying in yourself. I'll say it again because it's that good. You'll never glory in God until first God has killed your glorying in yourself. If you feel called to ministry, I pray that God will kill your glorying in yourself. I pray he'll kill your desire for fame and notoriety, the desire that stems from the pride of life, which first John tells us is of the world, not of Christ. You must die to your own notoriety so you can esteem others as better than yourself so that you can serve others faithfully, even in the little things. Sometimes the little things in life aren't little in the long run. Sometimes the things that are menial are still meaningful. Being willing to be faithful in the small and insignificant things is what qualifies you to do the big things. Jesus said, he who's faithful in that which is least is also faithful in much. Trust me, friend, your faithfulness in the small, insignificant stuff matters. And Rebecca was about to learn that. Sometimes the little things aren't little because they're a chance... To demonstrate faithfulness, even when it brings you no glory, no notoriety, no fame. By the way, if you'd like to know a great example of that, a person who truly embodied that, I can think of no better example than Philip Berryhill. This is going to choke me up, and I'm sorry for that. I was a pastor at this church for more than three years before I found out some of the ministry he was doing. You know why? Because he was searching out people that had nothing. He was going to the nursing homes because he knew those people can't, they can't make noise, make a big deal of him. But they loved the old hymns. 
He would go to the nursing homes and he would play the old hymns and talk to people about Jesus and visit with them. And he never said a word. I had no idea. It, the, the, the way I found out, by the way, was Darren Jolly and I having a conversation and he just mentioned it in passing. And I was like, what? Yeah, you know, when he goes to the nursing homes, he plays music during the week. No, I didn't. You know why I didn't know? Because he wasn't blowing a trumpet in the market. He was finding people and serving them. Back to the narrative. Abraham's servant knows that he needs to find a humble, faithful, hardworking young woman. She's got to be strong enough and tough enough for rural life. She's not going to have all the trappings and acraments of the city life. She can't be soft. And yet she needs to be sweet. That's hard to do. She's going to be marrying into a massive ranching operation, basically. He knows that's part of what he's looking for. He needs somebody that's hardworking. And he knows basically all the hardworking young women are going to be there at the well. They're going to be doing the menial, insignificant stuff that it takes to serve their, their households and their families faithfully. And he knows he needs that. But that's not all. He needs more than that. So he devises a test to really try the character of this young woman. She's going to have to possess uncommon hospitality. She's going to have to be strong, tough, and quite frankly, unafraid of hard work. It is not going to be easy to take a huge pitcher, fill it up with water, run all the way down to the well, fill it up with water, run all the way back, dump it in the trough. Run all the way back down, stand in line, fill up the water all the way back, jump in the trough. How many times did you have to go back and forth? I don't know, more than one. She's going to have to have uncommon hospitality, be unafraid of hard work, and be willing to go out of her way for strangers in need. She doesn't know these people. She just knows they have a need, and she has the ability to fill it. Okay. Pick it up at verse 15. And by the way, remember, this is all unannounced, too. She doesn't get to prepare. You've got to catch her at the end of the day. She's already done a lot of work by then. She's tired. The end of the day, let's see how much grace she's really got. Verse 15, and it happened before he'd finished speaking that behold, Rebecca, who was born to Bethuel, son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her pitcher on her shoulder. Now, the young woman was very beautiful to behold. There are not a lot of women in scripture that are actually um, described this way. There's six. I was actually going to talk about that. I knew I would, I would never hear the end of it if I did. When the scripture says she was beautiful to behold, she was very beautiful to behold. She had uncommon beauty. She was a virgin. No man had known her. In other words, she has uncommon morality. She's chaste. She went down to the well, filled her pitcher, and came up. Okay, so I want you to realize they're not sitting by the well. They're close enough you can see it. They're in the vicinity of, but they're not down there by the well. She went down, filled her pitcher, and came back up. And the servant ran to meet her and said, please let me drink a little water from your pitcher. So she said, drink, my Lord. Then she quickly let her pitcher down to hand and gave him a drink. That is significant. It seems like, because we're not really aware of the culture of the time, it seems like it's not that big a deal. It was a big deal. The reason that was a big deal was 
She's got a big jar of water on her shoulder. There was two ways you could do this. Hey, I'd like a drink. You could do it one of two ways. Okay, come over here, get a drink. Well, see, if you never took it down off your shoulder, it was a lot easier. This is heavy, right? You got to take it back down, hoist it back up, do that without spilling. It's a whole lot easier just to hold it and you just kind of pour it and the guy gets a drink. But see, to do that, the front of their bodies would have been touching. And that was kind of seen as immodest. So instead of being immodest, instead of venturing into impropriety, she does what's actually harder, more work. She lets down the pitcher and then pours it out. There you go. You can drink. Quickly let down the pitcher to her hand and gave him a drink. That's the other thing. She was wise. I don't know this guy. What kind of disease does this guy have? Was disease rampant that day too? Yeah, of course. Would you want someone else drinking straight out of the pitcher of your home? Dude, if you do, please don't tell me. I have such a thing with people's mouths, right? Like, mm-mm, new, new. When I was coaching, I had a big, like, 32-ounce pop I had just bought on my desk. One of the kids came in and was like, hey, is that Mountain Dew? I was like, yeah. Man, right on. I was, I, you can have it. Are you serious? I can have the whole thing? Yeah. Yeah, you can have the whole thing. You don't want this. No, not, not anymore. I'm not. Mm-mm. No, I do not. Right. She was smart. She knew that. I'm not going to spoil my entire household's water. This jar is holding the water for her whole family. I don't know what this guy's got. So I'll let it down, which is more work, and I'll pour it out, and I'll let him drink from my hand. I'm not going to let him put his lips on the jar. This is my girl. I love this girl already. I'm just telling you. There's a huge difference. But the reason that was a big deal was because she was being modest. Notice this. I'm going to have to stop here. I've got like three and a half more pages of notes, but I'm not going to get through them. Verse 18, she said, drink, my Lord. And she quickly let her pitcher down to her hand and gave him a drink. And when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I'll draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. Remember what he prayed? Hey, God. Let this girl say, I'll give your camels a drink too. In other words, she's going to pour the rest of her pitcher out in the trough and the camels can kind of get that, right? He's got other men with him. He can have them go down and and get water and and water these camels. But instead, she says, yeah, you go ahead and do that. I'll, I'll keep coming and putting water in this trough until they're done drinking. Ten camels. Probably the size of the pitcher, in case you're wondering, in case you're a curious soul like myself. Standard pitcher size. That day in culture, still in that day in culture. In today's day and culture, same thing. About two and a half gallons. Gallon of water weighs around eight pounds, right? I mean, you have to think, if you get bigger than two and a half gallons, it becomes so heavy and so big, it's just unwieldy. You can't, one person can't do it. Right? So if you needed more than two and a half gallons, what you would do is you'd get another jar, you'd get a stick, and you'd hang the jars from the end of the stick, right? And that's, or you'd have to come out in the morning and in the evening, right? She's got one jar. Two and a half gallons, it's a pretty good sized jar. And the jar itself is earthenware. I mean, it's, it's heavy, just empty. And she says, I'll fill this trough. I'll keep going back and forth until your camels are all watered too. At the end of the day, after she's already done all her chores, let me tell you something. Most of us would miss that. You know why we would do it? We would not pass that test. Hardly any of us in here would pass that test. You know why? It's inconvenient. Dude, it's the end of the day. I'm trying to get back home. I'm tired. 
dirty, probably sore. I got to get the water back. My family is expecting me to come back. You going to inconvenience yourself? Man, there's been times I've drove down the road and not helped somebody change a tire because I got to get where I'm going. I don't have to change a tire. Right? But it's inconvenient. And that's part of the test. You willing to go out of your way? So much more, but I'm going to have to wait till next time. There's so much to this. And we're not going to get to it, and that's okay. Let me sum it up by saying this. She showed uncommon character. In that, even in that day and age. In that day and age when hospitality was common, she showed an uncommon kind of grace, of toughness, hard work, diligence. She's an incredible young woman. And we're going to go more into that next time. For now, we'll have to stop with that. By the way, did you notice Eliezer didn't ever tell her the whole mission? He put those rings on her and stuff and didn't ever tell. There's a really good reason why he did that. Would you like to know what that is? I'm going to tell you next time. <laughs> got, to keep, got, to, got to keep coming back, right? Here's the hope. She's still in the dark. Why? That's a great question. And we're going to answer it. And I'm going to keep you in suspense until then. So let's pray. God, we thank you for your sweet and holy word. Please humble our hearts before you. Let us esteem others as better than ourselves. Let us not desire notoriety and fame, but simple faithfulness to you. Let us not despise the, men, the, the menial, mundane, and seemingly insignificant tasks of life. Remind us that if you've asked us to be faithful in something, then it isn't insignificant, and it isn't a small thing. Though it might be unnoticed or shunned in our culture, the narcissism that we live in, it's not a small thing in your eyes. Refocus us again on the only one who can change our selfish motives and our heart's desires, and that is Christ. Lord, it's in his sweet and holy name that we pray. Amen. We have something else we're going to do today. So glad you're here. Uh, if I can have the elders come up. Um, Benjamin Burnett. Get up here, buddy. In case you don't know the whole story. Benjamin thinks we're going to pray over him today and send him out. We're actually handcuffing him, not letting him go. So eyes up here. Benjamin's been an incredible young man, a faithful young man in our church. Benjamin has this kind of heart. I'm going to embarrass him. Some, there's, there's some young men in here, I'm going to tell you this, that are truly jewels, that have the hearts to serve others, whether they get any notoriety, any recognition or not. And Benjamin's one of those. And Benjamin has an incredible gift that most people don't know because he doesn't toot his horn in the marketplace. Benjamin is incredibly talented with um, a lot of things in, when it comes to computers, but especially when it comes to uh, audio, so, audio sound bites, software making. The stuff that he can do on a computer is incredible. The stuff that he can do with um, – anyway, I'm rambling on. I'm sorry. Answers in Genesis decided they needed Benjamin Burnett. That's hard for me for two reasons. I'm a science guy. I'm a creation guy. I love the ministry of Answers in Genesis, so I'm very excited that Benjamin will be going out there and working for them. But I also know how much he has encouraged and helped and strengthened a lot of the other young men and women in our church. And 
Um, in that in that regard, it's bittersweet. Bethany, keep this guy in line. Full time job for three people probably, but we're excited. We're excited to see where the Lord's taking him. Uh, and so we want to pray over him. We want to bless him. We actually want to, um, we're going to do a little love offering basically for him uh, to help cover some of the costs, moving costs. So if you'd like to put a little bit of money toward that, please get a hold of one of these guys. And what we'll do is we'll just make one check out at the end that way. We want to do that for him, though. We love him. So if you want to lay hands on him, let's pray for him. Father God, we thank you so much for Benjamin. We realize you've given him gifts. You have called him, Lord, that before he was ever born, God, you had, you'd seen and you'd called him and you'd set him apart to this work. And Father, I ask that as he goes, he would be a reflection of you, that he would be diligent, hard worker, honest, that all the things that we've seen of Christ in him here, that he would be that there. We thank you, Lord. We know your word says that it's you that works in us to will and do to your good pleasure and that you have done this work in him and that you are continuing the work that you began in him. And, Father, we ask that you would be with him, be with him and and Bethany. Watch over them, Lord. Be with him in the move. Be with him in the resettling. God, we ask that when he gets there, you would bring godly men around him, Lord, godly friends around him, that he'd be able to find a church home there, God. Um, that he'd be able to be planted and to flourish there and just be a blessing to the body of Christ even more than he has been already. We thank you for it, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen.